welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Spoiler alert, at the end of Robert Louis Stevenson's strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Jekyll kills himself. He fears he will permanently remain Mr. Hyde when he's unable to secure the right chemicals to prevent his transformation. The only way to be free was to die. Lead teacher Randy Pope continues the series Freedom with the first part of the message, Free from the Law, which covers Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Thank you for joining us today. We're in a series, it's on freedom. Not the license to do what we want to do, but the power or ability to do what we should do. It's in Romans chapter 6 and chapter 7. Now, these two chapters, they put the most important teachings of the Christian faith. How do you live the Christian faith? What is the Christian faith? I don't know how you live the Christian faith without a good understanding of Romans 6 and 7. If you break down the three chapters, here's the way it lays out. Chapter 6 talks about freedom from sin. We've already covered that in three weeks. Previous to Christmas, we talked about how to die to sin. Death to sin, critically important. In fact, I would say, and I honestly say this not because I'm just in the series, I would suggest that that is the most important teaching for me in all of the Bible, is Romans chapter 6. Get it, listen to it. If you read it, just make sure you understand the depth of Romans chapter 6, what it means to be free from sin. Now this week, we pick up for this week and next week, and we're going to talk about a different death. Not a death to sin, not a freedom from sin, but we're talking about a freedom and a death from the law. From the law. Now, when we talk about the law, we're talking about the Ten Commandments, the law of Moses. You can just keep making the circle larger and larger, the Word of God in full. Isn't it odd that we're going to be talking about dying, dying to our relationship with the law? Now, I'll come back to that, but let me just tell you number three that we'll look at the last two weeks of the series. It's talking about freedom to struggle not from something but to something the freedom to be able to struggle how many people live the Christian life and say what's wrong with me I just struggle so much the the evil that I don't want to do it seems like I'm always wanting to do and the the things that I it's just the I don't I don't understand why 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 those are the very words of Paul in Romans chapter 7 and he's going to teach us we are free to struggle It is a part of our existence to struggle, but we have to struggle with freedom. So we'll get to that. Now, this is a hard, very hard text to teach. I I taught it last night at at our Saturday night service. I came home and, and rethought the whole thing saying, how do you teach this? How do you make this clear? This is so challenging, but so important. It's not the kind of text that you go, boy, that felt good. Thank you for that. But I'll tell you, it's rich in importance. Here's why it's so confusing. We're talking about freedom from sin. We say, okay, sin, the sin nature of chapter six, as we talk, that's a bad thing. 
Let's get it as far away. I want to be free from it. Let's get it away. It's bad. And that's the way we think. When we come to freedom of the law, we're actually saying something that's a little confusing. The scriptures are teaching, oh, oh, I want to be divorced from the law. I, I, want, to be, I want to be separated from it in a sense. But at the same time, it's not something that's bad. The law is actually something very, very good. Now, for many of us who have grown up in the, the Christian environment of the South or we've heard Bible teaching through the years, I would assume that very large numbers of us have been taught and to this day believe that in the Old Testament we were under law, in the New Testament we're under grace. It is not the teaching of the Bible. Nowhere to be found. What we've done is we've pitted law against grace. Oh, law, something bad, grace, something so beautiful and good. The truth of it is, law is as beautiful as grace. Law is actually the expression of God's own character. What's wrong with that? Nothing wrong. What we do want to pit against one another is salvation by law versus salvation by grace. So to use the term under the law that many of us have probably heard through the years, under the law, people in the Old Testament who are not Christians are under the law. People in the New Testament who are not believers, they're under the law. In the Old Testament, those who are followers of Jehovah, truly what we would call today as a Christian in the Old Testament, they are now under grace in the Old Testament. When they lived, they lived under grace. Even as today, those that are Christians live under grace. So what we want to do is we want to understand, okay, we're talking about separation from sin because that sin nature is a very evil, bad thing that we want as far away as possible. I don't even want to, oh, I want to whoop that thing. But when we come to the law, that very challenging thing to understand is, oh, I need to be divorced from the law, but my divorcee needs to be my very, very best friend. And that just doesn't compute in our thinking. It just seems like it should be a bad thing. It's not. So please keep that in mind as we walk through this. Now, I have wrestled and wrestled and wrestled with how to teach this. I did the same wrestling back eight years ago when we went through this series before. And I found that it was very helpful for those who were interested in doing so to read a little side book. It has nothing to do in terms of a Bible teacher or anything. It's by Robert Louis Stevenson. Most of you are familiar with it, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. The people who read this, I heard over and over. I put notes at the end of my, uh, of my messages eight years ago when I was walking through the same text of just how many people. Boy, that helped. It's 80 pages. It's a little book, as you can see. And I realize that many of you are not readers. Many of you will never read it, even if you are readers. I know that. And you do not have to read this for this text to come alive. In fact, it's really next week and the next that it really begins to make application. But I wanted to give you a week notice. We have these in the bookstore if you're interested. I think they cost just a little over $3. You can get them online free of charge. And if you do nothing else, I highly encourage you, just read the last chapter, which is Dr. Jekyll's Last Will and Testament. I want to give you the story so that you understand it, and that way you don't have to read the other 73 pages, all right? 
I want to make it as easy as possible. So in case you're not aware of the story, or maybe some young kids here that, that haven't heard this story before, the story is simply this. Dr. Jekyll, a very noble and good, well-respected man, was very dissatisfied with his life. The reason he was so dissatisfied was because he had this struggle of, of two selves that he recognized was in him. And by the way, Robert Louis Stevenson, who writes this, was raised up in a staunch, let me give you a little hint, staunch Presbyterian church. And he knew the teaching of Romans chapter 7. Many convinced this is simply an expression of what he was feeling as we find in Romans chapter 7. So he had these two, two selves, and uh, the, co the conscientious self and the coveting self. And his thought was there is a congruence, uh, a congruent compound, as he called it, that these two coexist. And he thought, what a delight life would be if the two could be separated. Either life could be so good without the other. He thought, you know, the wickedness, the evil that I so want to do I would absolutely enjoy every moment of that kind of life if it weren't for the haunting conscience that constantly says, you're wrong, you shouldn't have done that, you're guilty, and you just feel horrible about things you otherwise love so much. On the other hand, here he wants to be the very good, noble, and generous, and kind person, but he's always got this, it's like an evil thing, just kind of you know, nipping at him and always challenging him and hurting him. And he goes, you know what, if I could just separate the two. So in this very fictitious book, what he does is he comes up with a, a potion that he could take. And when he would take the potion, he would become a different person physically. He'd lose, I mean, literally became smaller. He became gnarly, became very wicked and mean and ugly. And he used the name Mr. Hyde. When he's not in Mr. Hyde, he would be Dr. Jekyll, a very kind and very notable individual. Well, what happened was he found himself as Mr. Hyde doing some very wicked things, including committing murder. And so he now realized, boy, there's some, there's some real problems here. And so as he came back to his Dr. Jekyll, he started doing more and more and more very generous things. And I mean, just trying to do everything he could to make up for the evil that he'd done. Then something happened. The potion began to change in such a way that he, as Dr. Jekyll, would literally turn into, without taking anything, he'd turn into Mr. Hyde, and now he has to have a potion to become the good Dr. Jekyll. And then at the end, he can't get the ingredients for the potion, and now he's trapped. He is Mr. Hyde. And he hates himself so much that he takes his life. And when he takes his life, or before he takes his life, he writes his last will and testament and leaves it for his lawyer to read. And so all you do at the end is to read the story of his last will and testament. And there he describes this terrible wrestling in his heart. And he describes Romans chapter 7. Now, there's a lot of things as an analogy that do not go well out of the book. It's not meant to be a teaching book of the Bible. But I'll tell you, this little illustration and reading it will make a lot of difference as you start looking at chapter 7, particularly next week and the following weeks, okay? Now, 
There are two truths found in verses 1 through 13. We're going to divide them in half. We're going to take half of it this week, half of it next week. If you have your, your uh, inserts and your outlines, you'll see that the first is that believers are released from the law. Verses 1 through 6, that's what we cover today. And then next week we'll come back and see that believers are indebted to the law. Now, I, I started reading the text. I tried to think, how do I make this simple? How can it be understood? And it became very daunting. And so I came up with an illustration that I think is like a little key that unlocks the mystery of the text. I'm going to give you that story. It's a true story that is like an analogy to the text. But I want us first to have seen the text. And because this time I'm going to read the text in its entirety, it's short enough that I can do that, I'm going to invite you, if you would, to stand and honor the Word of God. We'll read it. Though you will not read it out loud, I hope you will follow on the screen, if not in your own scriptures. And here we find the Word of God. It reads, Or do you not know, brethren, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we've been released from the law, having died to that, by which we were bound so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter. Keep in mind, folks, this is God's infallible word given to us, inspired by God, so that we can understand life. It's a tough text, isn't it? If I ask, can you explain the text now? You'd find it hard, even as I did, as we began to study it. But I'll tell you, it's rich. And we're going to see it in as simple a way as possible. So take your seats and I'll tell you the story. The story is a true story. It's the story of Carol and my dating life. We had dated for four years, uh, cared very much for each other. And as we had, as we had uh, been together these four years, the, the conversation came up about you know, our future and what we were thinking and let's share what each other's intention and hope and thought would be about the future. And we realized that our, our thoughts were much, much, much different. Carol's thoughts were, were not to get married immediately, but sooner. Mine was later and much, much, much later. I wanted to wait a long time. Now, I love dating her because I cared a lot about her. I didn't want marriage. It wasn't that I didn't want Carol. I just didn't want marriage. If I was going to be married, I wanted Carol, but I just didn't want marriage. And when Carol heard how long out I was hoping to wait for marriage, she said, I don't think that's, I don't think that's what I'm 
I'm cut out to do. I, it must not be right. I don't know. But, but we're going to have to separate if that's what it means. Well, as much as I hated to separate from Carol, as much as I cared for her, there was one thing that, that I, I wanted more than even Carol, and that was not to be married. I didn't want to be married. Why would I be married? I mean, there's, there's new responsibilities. There's commitment. There's all kind of stuff that I just didn't want, though I really enjoyed and wanted to be with Carol. Well, she broke up with me, in essence. We went different ways. We were living in a different state from the other, and, and now there was a, a, a freedom to, to date and so forth that we you know, had not been utilizing at all, though certainly we could, but we weren't, We just because we, we cared for each other. It was during that time that I met a, a very attractive uh, girl, uh, spiritually and physically in every way. It would be what, what somebody would say, well, there is a, a great choice for someone to, to go out with. And we went out together and, and would have a great time. But I'd come home from a date with this girl, and my roommates would say, how was it? And I'd say, you know, it was fantastic. We had, the more, we had more fun. It was, uh, you know, it's just such a, it was great. But... It just wasn't Carol. And after enough, but it just wasn't Carol, I realized that I wasn't designed for this girl. She wasn't designed for me. Carol was the one that I needed that would meet my needs. That I would meet her. That would be, that's the relationship that I longed for. And so actually she did me, a, this girl did me a great favor. We had discussions and talked and, and she helped me understand me and what I needed and so it led to breaking off that relationship so that Carol and I now could come back together which we did obviously and we're married now that tells the story of this, this text here's how it's told I'll use the analogy of my Christian experience I was a non-Christian I thought I was a Christian as I thought most Protestants and Catholics would be Christians. I too was a Christian. I wasn't, but I sure loved being with God. I was dating God on a regular basis. I would hate the thought of having to break up with God, though I will say that I did some other dating while dating God. I had other interests besides just God, but I thought it was good enough, and so I was happy where I was. Then I came to a season in my life where I began to be exposed to the teaching of the law of God. And the law of God opened my eyes to see what was really going on inside of me. And I saw that what I had been committed to, trying to be a good Christian and follow this thing right here, to at least some significant degree, that that was not meeting my deepest need. That what I really needed was a marriage to Christ. And literally, there was a divorce from the word so that I could marry, so I could marry Jesus. And when I say from the word, I mean from the law in the word. All the things that I'm instructed to do and not to do. I had a wrong relationship with this thing. And it was only after I came into a relationship with Christ that I could now look back and see the beauty of this thing that I had never seen with new interest to read it and understand it. It changed everything. 
You see, folks, I don't want by anything I teach from this text to leave anybody with the impression that this is really not that good a thing and this can really be a bad thing. No, it's in whose hand is this thing? It's kind of like a knife. I'll expand on this analogy probably more next week, but it's like a knife. Anything wrong with a knife? Well, it depends. The knife is fine. It's a good thing. But put it in a murderer's hand. And you don't want to see that knife. Put it in the hand of a surgeon. You don't want to see the knife, but you'll invite that knife because of what it can do for you. You can hold that knife in your own hand to open something, to cut something that has to be cut, and you're so very thankful and appreciative of the knife. The issue is not the knife. The issue is who's holding it. And we're going to see that there are there are two entities that can hold the knife. It can be held by the old nature of sin, and when it holds the knife, we're in huge trouble for what it'll do to us. It'll murder us. Put the knife in the hands of the Spirit of God, and it becomes the most beautiful thing, the most wonderful asset we could possibly ever have. That's the teaching of Romans 7. I'll read the text and see if it doesn't come alive as we do so. Now understand that the first thing we're hitting just today is the believer is released from the law. So we want to understand what is Paul saying when he says we've been released from the law. Now this came across to the Jewish people. Oh my goodness. Let me tell you, the Jewish people were, they were the recipients of the law of God. In Romans chapter 9 verse 4, it just talks about what a wonderful honor the that the Jewish people had to have the word given to them. The law was theirs. This became for them the centerpiece of their social structure. It taught them how to live. It taught them how to work. It taught them how to die. They were so in love with this law. Oh, my goodness. They were married to the law. Even as I was married to the law. Even as at some point every one of us here have been and maybe still are married to the law. And so here comes Paul and he says, oh, by the way, even to the Jewish people, you need to know this, you've been released from the law. Let me tell you, to them, that was blasphemy. It incensed them. The Pharisees, oh my goodness, they were repulsed. They say, what are you talking about? Paul, what are you talking about? So Paul is going to explain what he's talking about when he says, you've been released from the law. And there is the verses that we look at today, 1 through 6. So let's look at verse, verse 1, but we'll look at the, the topic. If you look at your outline, I divided it basically into two thoughts. While alive to sin, man is bound to the law. And then we'll talk about us being released from the law, but let's talk about us being bound to the law. Uh, verse 1 of chapter 7, it begins like this. Or do you not know, brethren, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? Now, the word jurisdiction is our key word there. It means bound or to be held down. Bound or to be held down. It's another way of saying, do you not know that, that you're under the law? It's that very same concept of under the law. What it's saying when we say we're under the law or bound to the law is we're under the requirement of perfection we're under the judgment of the law its penalty 
So everybody who is not a Christian is under the law. Do you not understand you're bound to its jurisdiction? And it is, it is declaring that you are guilty and you've got to pay a penalty. That you have to live a life of perfection not to experience the penalty. So that's what it means to be bound or to be under the law. Then we come to verses 2 and 3. Oh, by the way, before I hit 2 and 3, notice the little phrase there, as long as he lives. Now, this is very important because if you were with us in chapter 6, you know, I use this illustration of the hands that, that here I am, this is my left hand, and here's my old nature right hand, and I come into this world as you and I all do. We come in and we are bound to the sin nature. And then it says that we die to sin. Death means separation, so there is a separation, right? So when it says here in this little, little phrase in the verse where he says, as long as he lives, that means until one dies to sin. As long as I'm alive to sin, which he's been talking about in Romans 6, you're bound. So think of it this way. If bound to the sin nature, you're bound to the law of God. That's, his, that's what he's saying. You're bound to the law of God. Now we'll look at verses 2 and 3. He says, for the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she should be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Now, he uses marriage analogy and is using the man in the analogy to be you and me and the woman as the law. Now, here's the reality. Every analogy breaks down somewhere, and he doesn't mean that every specific can be followed. But the truth of it is, the law can't die. You and I can die. So he's saying if you want to be divorced from the law, from it binding you, then you have to die to sin. So when we talk about being released from the law, it's because we've died to sin. It's somewhat as if to say, if alive to sin, you're married to law. And oh, by the way, when you're married to the law, there's no desire for the law. There's no power to obey the law. It's not a very good existence. In fact, when married to the law, it's somewhat like a domineering husband. Some of you ladies have lived under that, maybe in years past. Maybe some even here today are experiencing it now. A domineering husband who's insensitive and requires perfection all the time. No, 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 not good enough. No, not good enough. Not good enough. Not good enough. You can only hear it so much and it just kills you. You die inside. That's what the law does to the non-Christian. Married to the law. You have to be married to the law if you're alive to sin. So it's this terrible relationship that nobody wants. Now, please, let's not make the law, you know, the, the bad guy. It's not that. It's in the hands of the sin nature. That's what makes it so hard and bad. Now, we come to Romans 5, and he describes life before becoming a Christian. He says, for while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law, there's a good thing the law does, it arouses those passions so we see ourselves, we're at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for what? Death. 
that has no good ending. But look at point two. In your outline, the subpoint there says, when dead to sin, man is free from the law. So now in verse six, our last verse, he describes the believer now who's been released from the law. He says, but now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that now we serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter. I love that. See, we, we serve in a new capacity now. Now we're no longer married to this law. It's out of the hands of the sin nature. Now it's in the hands of the spirit. And now the spirit uses the word to speak to us and to nourish us and to teach us and to convict us and all the things we need. Sometimes like a surgeon holding the knife and sometimes like we would hold the knife and say, oh, it's just for pleasant, good things, but it is all good for us. And so now there's a new spirit. It's not the letter of the law. It's now with the new spirit of the law, uh, the spirit that it's going to change everything. Here's the best way I can describe it. Some of us here have had or maybe now have children that are at the age where they're not yet quite yet being attracted to the opposite sex. And you know that grooming is not a high priority for such children. <laughs> and maybe your child at that age comes to you and gets near you and you went, Woo, oh my goodness. Uh, did you brush your teeth this morning? Nope. Nope. Well, let me ask you, did you brush your teeth last night? Nope. Did you yesterday morning? Nope. When's the last time you brushed your teeth? I don't know. Well, you need to brush your teeth. I don't need to brush my teeth. Why does it, what does it matter? I don't care. I don't care. And you say, no, get in there and brush your teeth. I don't want to go brush your teeth. Okay. And by the way, when you're looking in the mirror, just look up one time and look at what's on top of your head. Do something to that. Just, just turn it one way or the other or something. Just do something up there, okay? I don't care about my hair. I know you don't, but we do. Do something about it, okay? Okay. And... Uh, you don't like the law to groom. Grooming laws are pathetic for somebody who has no love relationship. But let that same guy meet the little girl at school when all of a sudden something's changing inside and sees that cute little girl who looks back at him and he knows if I brush my teeth and comb my hair, she might really be attracted to me. And next thing you know, he's brushing his teeth three or four times a day. He's combing his hair. He's doing this. He's doing that. He's looking good and so forth. What happened? It's the same law of grooming. But now there's a new spirit because there is a love relationship. You see, when a person comes out of this relationship with sin, and there's a death to sin, and there's a uniting with the now, a new nature, now there is a new desire for grooming. Where do you go for instructions in grooming? You go to the law of God. It becomes your greatest friend. It's now I can, I can be before my master and, and he can see me in faithfulness and attractiveness as, as much as possible. Not because he won't love me if I don't, but because I love him so much, I, I just want that for him. It's a whole different ballgame. As we wrap this up, I think maybe one way to do it is to, to think about about different attitudes that we have. I will give you three different attitudes that are possible. And it just puts us into different categories to help us kind of see where maybe we are. First of all, there's the legalist. The legalist fears the law. 
Oh my goodness, I'm gonna keep it, I'm gonna do it because I got to, okay, mom, dad said I gotta groom, I'll groom, okay, but I don't want to. There's the legalist. But then there is the antinomian, the anti-against, nomus law. Those are against, they hate the law. They don't fear it, they just hate it. I don't want that law, I don't want to have anything to do with it. It's not helping me, I don't want it, I don't have to have it. The antinomian typically feels okay about that because he says, I've learned about God's grace and I'll just take his grace, I don't need his law. And then there's the third category, which is where we all want to be. It's the law-loving believer. The law-loving believer is who's being described by the psalmist where he says, oh, how I love thy law. It's my meditation day and night. Those who love the law have great peace and nothing causes them to stumble. You see, here is the law-loving follower or believer. And we need to understand how it works. I like to think of it as a walk. If you want to walk the Christian faith, then you need two steps. You need the right foot to lead all the time. And the right foot is understanding the grace of God. It's understanding what he's done for us. It's the gospel. It's the good news, what he's done for us. But let me tell you, I get up here. It's just, I got to, if I'm going to keep going, this foot comes next. And here is the, is the foot of obedience. It's where I want to obey, and I do what God tells me to do. And then I take another step, and it's the gospel. It's the good news of what he's done. And then there's another step, and it follows. That, that's a balanced walk, as opposed to I've just got one leg, and it's the leg of the legalist that says it's all about what I do for God, and I've got to hop, 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 hop. I can't do it very far. I'm going to fall. Or I can get over on the other foot, and I can do this, and I can hop on this, the, the other foot and say, I'll just go on the foot. Uh, of, of grace, 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 grace. No, 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 no. No, it's, it's a walk with both. It's not. And so we get people, Christians today, they're saying, oh, it's all about grace. And others, oh, it's all about law. No, it's about both. They're both beautiful. But the two have to go together. Always led by grace, followed by obedience. By the way, there are many who are teaching the word of God. And they wouldn't be legalists, but if you listen to them, it's all about what you got to do and do and don't and do and do and do and do. And oh, by the way, Jesus, yeah, but then do, do, do. And so those people grow up in that environment and it's all this restrictedness of, oh. And then others, there are preachers today that are just preaching the grace of God. And, oh, look what God's done. Don't worry about that because God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. Oh, yeah, and by the way, it's important that you obey, but it's God love. And next thing you know, people grow up under that and they've got this, this sense of, I don't want to hear about duty and obeying and that stuff's, that stuff's legalistic and you know, legalists are saying, oh, that's anti. No, no, no. It's a both and. Always important to remember that. We don't know who originally perhaps came up with this statement, but it's a great little statement to understand. It says, do this and live, the law commands, but gives neither feet or hands. A better word the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. That's the way you understand this text. I'd like to, uh, I'd like to close now with application and know that next week we're going to come back to the believer being indebted to the law and why we would love the law so much but I want to close with this application I simply want to ask you the question and I'd like for you to evaluate quietly the answer to the question what is your relationship with the law are you married to the law 
Or have you now become divorced in a good sense from the law? Are you married or are you divorced? If you're married to the law, do you want a divorce? You need a divorce. It's what you're really looking for. You tired of the law's abuse in the hands of a sin nature and the accusations and the guilt and the stuff you're going through? The answer is you have to die. The law won't die and it shouldn't die. It's a good thing. But the sin nature, we need to die to that nature. And so the answer is you, you come into a relationship, a love relationship with Jesus. That's the answer. It's called death. And you see the love of God and you beg for the mercy of God. And you get in the word of God. That's why this year I hope you that are seekers will read a lot of the word because as you read the word, it has a great usage. It's not just there to condemn you. It's there to condemn you so that you would then come to life and see the love of Jesus, the one you truly need to be married to. It's reading the word that stops you from just keep dating God. But no, I'm going to be in relationship with him in submission to him. That's what I really want. The word actually gives us that. Just remember, this law, she's good, but she was never intended to be your spouse. So divorce her so you can love her. If divorced from the law, but maybe find yourself like the Galatians who are living with the law as if you were married to it. Paul says to the Galatians, oh, you foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? Are you so foolish that you begin now in the spirit? You begin your Christian life and now you drift back to as if it's not by the spirit of God, but it's by the law, the letter. What, why are you doing that? You may be tired of performing. You feel like I'm just in that performance trap, a Christian, but in the performance trap. I'd give you two words of advice. One would be repent, and the other would be talk back. Can you remember those two? Simple, simple, simple. Repent. But repent of what? I suggest you repent of your righteousness. I suggest that I repent of my righteousness. It's really not God's righteousness. It's my self-righteousness. It's your self-righteousness. Paul Tripp great author. This is what he says. Before you can ever make a clean and unamended confession of your sin, you have to begin first by confessing your righteousness. It's not just your sin that separates you from God. Your righteousness does as well. Because when you're convinced that you're righteous, and that's a self-righteousness, you don't seek the forgiving, rescuing, and restoring mercy that can be found only in Jesus Christ. So my first word to you, as to me, is let's repent. That's where it starts. The second I take from Martin Luther, and I, I come up with the words, but basically his quote tells me, talk back. Talk back to that law that's in the hands of the sin nature. Or at least we're perceiving that it is in some way acceptable to be in the sin nature's hand because now we're hearing accusation after accusation you're worthless you'll never make it god never love you you're you're doomed now god when you're listening just say talk back here's how martin luther put it he said blessed 
is the person who knows how to use this truth, the gospel, meaning what all God has done for us in times of distress. He can talk. He can say, Mr. Law, go ahead and accuse me as much as you like. I know I've committed many sins and I continue to sin daily, but that does not bother me. You have got to shout louder, Mr. Law. I am deaf, you know. Talk as much as you like. I'm dead to you. If you want to talk to me about my sins, go and talk to my flesh. Belabor that, but don't talk to my conscience. My conscience is a lady and a queen and has nothing to do with the likes of you. Because my conscience lives to Christ under another law, a new and better law, the law of grace. So I'd say repent, talk back. Maybe there's one other category. What about those of us here happily divorced and living in a healthy relationship with the law? I'd say to all of us, let's say thank you. Because it's Jesus who took the penalty of the law so that we can love the law. Let's talk to the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we're in different categories of, of life right now. And we sit among a lot of people. We know our own heart, but don't even know it well enough. But some of us right now sense that, that we're, we're married to the law and we'd like a divorce right now. We're going to ask you that you would allow us to die to the sin nature by looking at Jesus and accepting his full payment on our behalf and counting that as done. Some of us, Father, are, we've experienced a divorce with the law, but we've come back and living as if we're married. Lord, we pray that you would hear us now as we would repent and say, first of all, sorry for our, our righteousness that makes us believe we're okay as long as we're obeying. God, forgive us for that. And Lord, give us the wisdom and the will to talk back as the law begins to scream at us to say in our conscience, we're not loved by you. Grant that, we pray. For those of us that are truly divorced and in a good relationship with the law, we just want to say thank you. We're blessed among all people. And we pray, give us even a greater love for that beautiful law. Help us next week to understand what it really means to be indebted to that law so that we might love her more and more in an appropriate way. So we thank you now. We give you all this in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.